0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 193, Microprose, Part 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We're back. We just got done doing a round a world flight together in an F-15 Strike Eagle, blowing new holes into theories of video game history. Alex was telling me where to go. I was flying. This is probably a bad idea. But we're back to talk about more MicroPose.
1: I mean, we're still here, so it couldn't have been too bad an idea. But that's right. It is time for round two of Microprose as we continue our look at the company from its founding up until the point that it became a subsidiary of one of its competitors in 1993. So not quite the entire story of all companies named Microprose, but the period of time when the classic company was an independent entity. We spent last episode for those with short memories, kind of establishing our two major players here, the business guru and the tech guru that both had an eye for high-quality design, Wild Bill Staley and Sid Meyer, who put this company together. And we brought them through their early periods of trying to get established and to their periods of first success, which was really launching that one-two punch of Solo Flight and F-15 Strike Eagle. We're just to the point where the company was about ready to expand and do something that was really pretty unusual in the period of time that we're talking about. And that is not just incorporating programmers and not just incorporating artists and sound people, but also bringing in people whose primary focus was purely on design without also being the primary programmers. So. Yeah, that's where we
0: are. But before we dive in, I'm just going to have to hit you guys with these two points because they're coming up quickly. First point this is episode 193. That's right. That means there are seven episodes until episode 200. So if you would like to share some of those memories so that we can use them in episode 200, I need them. My mailbox looks a little quiet right now.
1: (laughs) Even if you don't have a particular memory of the podcast necessarily if there's a podcast that sparked a fond memory, it doesn't have to be a memory of the podcast itself. It could be like I listened to an episode about X and it reminded me about how much I liked X or it took me back to this thing about X as a kid, or I didn't even know this thing about X and it was cool to learn about it. I mean, it doesn't have to be specifically about the podcast, but it should still be podcast adjacent. We're not just going to be going for completely random, you know, my personal memories of gaming stuff. But if our podcast has either enriched your understanding of video game history or has been a great nostalgia trip back into your own history with video games, let us know, and we'll uh, share some of that as part of the 200th anniversary extravaganza, which I suppose at some point we're going to have to figure out even exactly what that is. But it will involve you, the listener, That's good. (laughs) That's right. The other thing is, also,
0: today is September 1st, which means two things. One,
1: this is the podcast anniversary. We're something years old now. Eight, I think. Something like that. And also, you said two things, but it means three things. Unless this is one of the things you were going to say, in which case, I've just screwed everything up. But That's what we do on They Create Worlds. We screw everything up. But the second thing, which may be two of two or two of three, is at the moment this is dropped, we are in full on Dragon Con mode. Dragon Con is happening right now in Atlanta, Georgia. That's right. I think the panel would have ended by the time this thing
0: drops. I don't know.
1: Yes, I believe it is too late at this point to download the episode and immediately run over to our panel because it will have already passed. But we are currently at Dragon Con doing whatever crazy people do at Dragon Con. Lots of rum buckets and pie. Those that go to Dragon Con, you understand what I just said. And if you don't understand, then why aren't you coming to DragonCon? Figure it out.
0: Finally, we do actually know the live stream. You know, we do that once a year, give or take. And we know that it's going to be at the end of October. Yes, We even know what it's going to be about. Handhelds. All the handhelds. That handheld. Your handheld. Their handheld, that Game Boy thing.
1: That's right. We are going to do a complete overview of the handheld electronic game industry, mostly focusing on video games. And in fact, technically, we probably won't be doing the entire handheld electronic game industry because once video games enter the picture, handheld video games will probably start ignoring some of the other stuff. But we're going to go back right to the beginning with Mattel Electronics and the first electronic handheld game boom, moving right through the first programmable handheld system, the Microvision from Milton Bradley, jumping in to the late 80s and into the 90s with the Game Boy, the Game Gear, and even on to more modern systems, even though we probably won't cover them, honestly, in as much detail, such as Nintendo's later systems, Sony's PSPs, etc., A topic we really haven't covered much at all. We've kind of touched on some of the early handheld game stuff from time to time when talking about the 70s industry, kind of in total, or when talking about Mattel Electronics. But we really have stayed away from the Game Boy, the Game Gear, the Microvision, these kind of programmable cartridge-based handheld systems. But at this point, there's some really, really great information out there. Of course, the consummate Nintendo historian, the Frenchman Florent Gorge, wrote a few years ago his History of Nintendo Volume 4, which is all about the Game Boy, and had an incredibly huge amount of developer participation. So there's a bunch of relatively recent information on the Game Boy that has never been in English before, or has rarely been in English before. Somebody else may have referenced Gorge someplace. I can't say we'll be the world first. But certainly, Gorge's book has not been translated into English, so this will be one of the first looks at that material in the English language and will allow us to go really deep deep on the Game Boy. There have been several interviews in Japanese with some of the principal people behind the Game Gear, so there's a great wealth of information that has rarely, if ever, been talked about, discussed, analyzed in English on that system as well. So at this point, it just feels like there's enough interesting new information, even on something like the microvision, that is an American system, so you don't have the same language barriers, but our good friend Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, feels like it's been a long time since I've uh, gotten to say that. Hey there, Ethan, friend of the show. Did an interview with Jay Smith, who led the development of the microvision. And so there's even material on a system like that that has not necessarily been shared more widely. So at this point, it felt like we had so much information and even new information on handheld game systems. Because it was a topic that we've almost entirely avoided, we hadn't really talked about any of them before. So rather than doing you know a Game Boy episode here, a Game Gear episode there... This just seemed like a perfect candidate for one of our marathon live stream events. So that's what we're going to do. When are we going to do that, Mr. Jeffrey?
0: The horror shall begin October 28th around 1 p.m. Central Time. UTC minus six or seven, depending on daylight saving time. Probably minus six at that time. But UTC minus six, we'll shoot for around there. Absolutely. The horror shall begin. I will decide whether or not I want to stream it to Twitch or YouTube or see if I can do something crazy like simulcasting.
1: Indeed. But we'll figure it out. But the important thing is mark your calendars because that is when all the fun will be. October 28th. Absolutely. But we've also got some fun to do right now, because we have an episode to do.
0: That's right. So now that we are done flying our jet fighters, we need to know how this company shall continue its meteoric rise in order to be horribly cannibalized by some other company.
1: Exactly. Uh, It will be a time of dizzying highs, uh, terrifying lows, and creamy middles, for sure. Bonus points, as always, if you get that reference. As I indicated at the top of this episode, for this period of MicroProse history, what we really need to do is focus on the concept of design, because this is something that MicroProse was starting to do that a lot of the other computer game companies hadn't really figured out yet. Now, obviously, there was a lot of designing going on in computer games, but it was programmers that were also responsible for game design. And some programmers were very good game designers. Some programmers were less good game designers. So there was a real uneven quality in the design of games. I mean, even games that we consider classics and that were very influential in their day, games like the early Ultima games or the early Wizardry games are not necessarily very well designed as games. And many of the designers would be the first to admit that. I mean, we did our Richard Garrett episodes where he talked about how Ultimas 1, 2, and 3 where Richard Garrett learns how to code. He wasn't a top-notch game designer yet at that point. These were kind of rare skills to perhaps have together. At Microprose, there was an emphasis on design even when it was just Sid and Wild Bill and a couple of other programmers helping out like Grandinari and Andy Hollis. Certainly, there was already good design going on. Sid was and is a good designer. I think that's probably part of the reason why they got an emphasis on design so early, is that Sid was a good designer. While Bill wasn't a designer, but he was somebody who appreciated design. He wanted something that was accurate, that had a certain verisimilitude to it, which also designing is, is a big part of that. And I think that's probably what led them down this path. You know, Sid's design philosophy, uh, he summed it up himself, and it it really is true. And we talked about some of this in our Sid Meier episode, but in the context, the wider context of Microprose, it still bears talking about here. His kind of core tenet of design is find the fun. Find the fun. Obviously, it means you should make a fun game. It means something a little more than that. And some of the other designers that were hired in during this period, people that we're going to talk about in a moment, when talking about Sid, they've kind of elaborated on this philosophy as well, and put it into a wider context. Microprose is making simulation games, starting with Solo Flight and Strike Eagle, and continuing on. All the games we're about to talk about, the gunships and silent services and Red Storm Risings and F-19 stealth fighters of the world, they're making simulation games. Simulation games need to be realistic to a degree, or... They won't feel satisfying to the type of people that are drawn to them because they want to kind of get a sense of what it feels like to actually fly an F-15 Strike Eagle and uh, go after the bad guys. But being accurate and doing good simulation design doesn't mean being 100% realistic. Because if you do that, you're going to kill your game from the perspective of being fun. For example, for that F-15 game, I don't think anyone wants
0: to spend the 10 hours of maintenance that is required in order to get the thing
1: ready to fly. Absolutely. And they don't want to go through all the rules of engagement. You know, to fire a missile on a jet fighter or a helicopter— is a multi-step double-checking process where you're releasing safeties and you're arming things and you're aiming super carefully and you're going through six, seven, eight steps before you actually press the button. That's not fun. Fun is, zombies coming right for you. You don't have to load that. (laughs) We already did that for you. Shoot them in the head.
0: To take the zombie and put it into context, would you like to A. There is a zombie coming for you. Prepare to fight. Find gun. Go to gun safe. Put in code. (laughs) Remove firearm. Remove safety lock. Remove secondary safety lock. Find ammunition. Use loader to put thing into. Yes, the zombie is gnawing on your foot now. That's okay. Put the ammo in. Keep putting that ammo in. Great. Now that you have it in, slide the gun back. Let the slide release. Okay. You did that too slowly. It needs to go nice and hard. Grab it firmly. Oh, yes, we know your foot's gone. It's okay.
1: Meanwhile, zombie's coming right for you. His axe is on fire.
0: You're probably already bored right there. Other option is gun out, gun, aim, fire, dead.
1: Exactly. And so there always has to be a balance between the realism of the simulation and the fun of actually playing the game. And so when Sid Meier talks about finding the fun... What he's really talking about is find that hook that makes the activity entertaining and engaging. Make that your starting point. What's fun about being an F-15 fighter pilot? Flying fast, doing fancy aerial maneuvers, launching missiles at the enemy, launching bombs at the ground if, if you're in a Strike Eagle fighter bomber configuration. Those are the fun things. You want to start by making sure that you're always allowing the person to do those fun things. Don't put unnecessary obstacles in the way of the player doing those fun things. Then once you've distilled down to the things that are fun, research the heck out of those. Make those as accurate and realistic as possible, those fun elements, and build the accuracy of your simulation around that. If you do it that way, your game will feel accurate, even if it's not 100% accurate, but it will also be fun. You won't lose the having a good time. So yes, maybe you're supposed to go through a six-step checklist before you fire a missile. The fun part is firing the missile. We decide that that's what's fun, so we're not going to do the checklist. We're going to cut all that out. We're just going to fire the missile, but We are still going to make sure that the missile guidance system locks on in a realistic way. We're still going to make sure that we're using the right button. Not that you have a model flight stick, or replica flight stick in your home, but there's usually a little hand on the screen that is mirroring your actions as part of you being the pilot in the game. We're going to make sure that the little animated pilot in the game is pressing the right button on the joystick. We're going to make sure that that missile travels in a realistic manner, to realistic speed, realistic distance. You know, we're going to make all of that realistic, but we're going to find the fun first and then only take the realism forward from that point. And by doing so, it is both entertaining, but the player still feels like they're engaged in something semi-realistic. It still feels like that was a realistic missile fire, even if they didn't go through the pre-checks, if that makes sense. I think we both hit this horse to death. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Sid already had that idea of finding the fun, and he already had an idea of programming, and he already had an idea of simulation, but what he didn't necessarily have, just as being an ace programmer first, is some of the idea of system design and building narrative opportunities out of systems that come out of being a pen and paper or board game designer. What I mean by that is he could build a decently realistic flight model of an F-15, and he could understand innately which parts of flying an F-15 and fighting in an F-15 are fun and which aren't, and make sure that his design of his simulation model focused on the fun parts of that. But he didn't necessarily have an idea of, okay, how do I design the world around this F-15? Who my pilot is, what his motivation is, what's going on around the pilot in order to create a sense of narrative immersion. And how do I construct missions or construct systems around enemy capabilities that allow for opportunities for emergent gameplay and allow players to craft their own narratives around that? You know, Dungeons & Dragons is a good example of this, because real classic Dungeons Dragons— I mean, obviously, you can play an RPG in any way you want. You can make it so all you do is roll dice all day long. You can make it so that you literally never roll a single die in an entire play session. You know, you can play D&D in a lot of ways, but really classic D&D was really just about exploring a dungeon. You had characters, those characters had abilities— They were placed in a dungeon to kill monsters and gather treasures. Maybe there's a little bit of story behind it. Maybe there isn't. It's just, you are adventurer. You go get treasure. Where the opportunity for narrative comes from in that, if you don't have a GM or a DM that decides that they want to craft an elaborate backstory, it comes out of the systems interacting together and interpreting those die rolls to create a plot. You may have a situation where you're up against this really tough enemy and the entire party has been knocked unconscious by the die rolls and you're the only one left standing. It feels overwhelming and the enemy, you get the sense, still has a lot of hit points and it's feeling kind of hopeless. But you roll your die, you take your shot, and you score a critical hit. And because you score a critical hit, you roll your damage dice and you do just enough damage to kill the monster. Well, nobody's told a story. It's all been dice rolls. But the game designers created a system where it's possible for your party to become incapacitated at higher level challenges. That's a rule that's played out here. They've created a system where it's possible to get a critical hit and get a particularly lucky shot. That's a rule system. By putting all of these things together, a narrative was crafted by a series of die rolls that allowed you, the player, to experience something exhilarating and to create your own personal narrative of how it is that you got this critical role. You can now create a story about how, you know, you were down to the last of your strength and in that moment you enter the zone and everything comes into focus. It's in slow motion and you can see the weak spot on the monster and even though it's super tiny, to you it feels like a giant chasm. And it's almost effortless as you pull back your bow and shoot your arrow, and it goes right into that target. Maybe the DM describes it that way, and maybe they don't. But that narrative is able to emerge from the structure of the rule system. I think it's that aspect of design that where Sid Meier may have had some inkling of this direction, he didn't necessarily have something like that fully thought out in his own method of design. This is something where bringing in people from the pen and paper industry or the board game industry can be very valuable. It's not just because they've devoted their time to design and so they think about it all the time. I can't remember which one of the Microprose designers it was now because I looked up several of them. I think it might have been Sandy Peterson, but it might have been one of the others, so I may have gotten that wrong. May have been Bruce Shelley, actually. There were a lot of them that came to Microprose. And what they said that was a very good point is that there are two primary pieces of value that a board game or pen and paper designer bring to video games that a video game designer, even a really good video game designer, doesn't necessarily have. The first of those is that board and pen and paper games can be prototyped really, really fast. Because all you have to do is say that, you know, I'm going to decide that the player can do this thing, and I'm going to say we'll use a D20 for this kind of thing, and we'll say that a 15 or higher is a success, and below that is a failure. Now, your system that you've just designed may be imperfect. That may be the wrong die to use, that may be the wrong number range to use, you might not get realistic results from that. But you've just created a statistical model that you can test out. If you're making a computer game, you have to make all those determinations. Then you have to be like, okay, and now I have to go in and I have to program this. I have to create the table and change these values here and change these values there. And of course, I'm just talking about something very simple, just one simple action. If you're talking about a whole system of things interacting with each other, that's more places in the code you have to change, more tables you have to set up, more variables you have to adjust. So it just takes longer to prototype in a video game setting than if you're doing a pen and paper, where you can just start doing it. Board and pen and paper designers tend to iterate more and iterate more rapidly as they develop systems, and so they really get in the habit of being really good at iterating quickly and tweaking things and advancing things. The other thing is, is that video games have always had a fairly narrow set of genres, I mean, yes, you could technically make a video game about almost anything, but very few people actually do. They end up being in a few different pigeonholes. While it's true that that's also true of board games and pen and paper games, that some games are more popular than other types, it's still true that board and pen and paper designers tend to work in a broader variety of genres than video game designers do. So they get used to thinking more outside the box and thinking more about wild genres or thinking more about how completely different genres can interact together to create something fun. So those kind of design chops are the kinds of things that are not necessarily present just for video game or computer game designers, even very good ones, but is the kind of things that board and pen and paper designers think of all the time. To bring this back to Microprose, I don't know exactly why Microprose decided that they wanted to bring in these kind of designers. I can guess. Both Wild Bill and Sid were very devoted to realism. Both of them were very devoted to researching topics and being informative on topics and providing these detailed manuals and getting accurate information about flying and all of this in because of Wild Bill's background. They were very interested in having these kind of design aesthetics in their games. I think because of that is probably why they naturally started gravitating towards designers that were either programmers as a secondary function or maybe didn't even program at all. Maybe they were just designers. But for whatever reason, after they had the success with F-15 Strike Eagle and Solo Flight and they had some more money and they were a growing company and they could hire more people in, They really tried to focus on not just hiring programmers, which they expanded their programming team as well, but also bringing in designers. They were able to follow in the tradition of another company that did this before them, and which we talked about before, so we don't have to belabor here, and that's Coleco Industries. We may recall from our ColecoVision episode that when Coleco was beginning to create the ColecoVision and create games for the ColecoVision, They were one of the first companies to truly split programming and design into two separate disciplines. We talked about that in that episode, but the reason they probably did that is because since they were on the East Coast, since they were in Connecticut, a lot of the talent making console games was all in California. That's where Atari, Activision, Imagic, Mattel, all of those companies were. And they had a huge talent base. There were so many tech people there. They could go through all the resumes of all the programmers and single out the ones that also had innate design capability and find those purple unicorns and hire them. Coleco being on the East Coast in Connecticut, not a tech hub, they had a more limited pool of programmers to choose from. And so it was a lot harder for them to find a really hotshot programmer who also happened to be a really good designer. So they split the disciplines. They started hiring people out of the pen and paper world. Janelle Jakeways who at the time went by Paul Jakeways, but she now goes by Janelle. Janelle Jakeways was hired in, Mike Stackpool was hired in, and they started bringing in all of their buddies. So they brought in a lot of people from the pen and paper world into game design there. Some could program, some couldn't, but they were all designing games. So that talent base was there, and then that talent base got laid off in 1983, 1984, 1985 when the crash happened. And we're now available right at the time when Microprose is hiring. So they start bringing in some of that same design talent. And the first person that they bring in, who is a pure designer, is a guy by the name of Arnold Hendrix. Arnold Hendrix had been at Coleco as a designer. That fell apart. He learned about Microprose. He learned Microprose was hiring. I don't know the exact details. But then he came and got hired by Microprose. And he did not program. So his entire purpose there was to do design. It was the first collaboration between Arnold Hendricks, Sid Meier, and Andy Hollis, who we talked about last episode, who was one of Sid's buddies at General Instrument, who came in to be another programmer of the company, that really illustrates this new direction for the company. Because in 1986, the three of them collaborated on a very successful game by the name of Gunship. Gunship was a helicopter flight combat simulator. It's not just boats that are called gunships. They would call attack helicopters gunships, too. It was based around the Apache helicopter. They decided they wanted to do a helicopter game because helicopters were cool. Helicopters were in vogue at the time. Television shows like Blue Thunder, Airwolf, everybody liked helicopters. They were fun, and it was keeping with their flight sim aesthetic, but pivoting slightly from the Strike Eagle thing, which they'd already done. Sid Meier was off doing other things at the time. He was primarily working on a submarine game called Silent Service. Again, they were trying to diversify. They didn't just want to do jet plane games. So Andy Hollis was the programmer, and Arnold Hendricks was the designer. Arnold came out of the pen and paper world. He had worked before Coleco. He had been the director of publishing from 1979 to 1982 for a wargaming and RPG company called Heritage Games. So he'd done board games, he'd done some RPGs, and he really enjoyed playing RPGs as well. He particularly enjoyed Traveler, which was one of the first science fiction RPGs, and RuneQuest, which was a competitor to Dungeons & Dragons in the fantasy space. He knew this world well, and he started injecting into gunship ideas out of role-playing games, which was not common at the time. So while Andy Hollis is trying to make a great realistic simulator, Arnold Hendricks is putting in this RPG stuff. He creates a world essentially for the player to inhabit. I mean, it's modern military stuff, but you actually play a pilot, a helicopter pilot. Your pilot goes through these missions. If your pilot dies, if you're shot down and fail a mission and you die, your game's over. Your save game erases and you have to start over because that is you. You have just died. There's no do overs. Your pilot also gets fatigued. Over time, you can go on R&R, take time off to recharge your character, just like a dungeoneering party in Dungeons and Dragons takes a rest, takes a short or a long rest to recover hit points, magic spells, etc. before the next big fight, your character, your pilot could take an R&R. He also introduced the idea of choosing your weapons loadout. And of course, they're going for accuracy, so they're all real weapons used by the the Apache helicopter. But you had to choose your precise loadout, and each weapon, you know, was a point system. Each weapon had certain weight values or other values. You had to configure your loadout for the specific mission you're doing, just like somebody in an RPG goes and buys equipment and figures out what they should carry with you and if they're over encumbrance what they should leave behind what's best for the mission they're about to do so he's introducing role-playing game elements into a flight simulator that aren't necessarily always there it had nothing to do with whether this game was an accurate portrayal of an apache helicopter or not but it gave the player a greater sense of investment in the character and in their role in the game and even though the game has no great story it's just going on a series of military missions It's not like you're playing Rambo, going and flying a helicopter against some mustache-twirling Russian-Soviet villain. It's anchoring you in the game in a way that you wouldn't necessarily get otherwise. So how does Sid Meier enter into this? Because I said it was a collaboration between all three of them, even though I mentioned he was off doing another game. Turns out the game engine that they had for Gunship was incapable of portraying a helicopter well. The problem with portraying a helicopter versus a jet is a helicopter is particularly agile when moving in certain directions. Now, obviously, a jet is faster than a helicopter, but we're not talking about getting absolute speeds correct. We're talking about what you can get away with in terms of moving your plane around on a computer of the the time, on a Commodore 64, which is what this is being made on. So they could do a jet fighter just fine because it basically moves fairly equally, or at least I think that's the case in how they did it. Whether you're going up, down, left, right, it's moving pretty equally. But a helicopter is much, much more agile moving side to side than it is moving up and down. With the engine that they had, they could not capture that. The whole system was too slow. It was bogged down at like one or two frames per second, and there was no way to get that sense of speed of moving side to side that you get in a helicopter. And without that, the realism of the simulation was shot, and the fun was gone. How to solve this? Sid at this time, he's finished, I believe, silent service by this time that he had been working on, and he's been experimenting with the Commodore Amiga. The Amiga, of course, is the hot, new, advanced system from Commodore with amazing graphics compared to other machines of the time, good sound, high-tech system ideal for gaming. Sid, our guy that's always drawn to experimenting with new technology, is working on this computer. He's trying to develop a new 3D engine that takes advantage of all the Amiga's power so that he can use it in the game. So that's what he's been doing. When Hollis and Hendricks come and say, you know, this game, we just can't, get it together, we can't get it working right, Sid was like, well, tell you what we'll do. I'm working on this great new 3D engine. Let's backport this engine to the Commodore 64, and I bet we can figure out a way to speed up your game enough that it makes it fun. So that's what they did. Now, obviously, the Commodore 64 is not the Commodore Amiga, so when he's backporting his new engine, it can't take advantage of everything he was doing on the Amiga, far more advanced. But it was still a better engine than the one that Hollis was working with. So by backporting it and then just working hard to optimize, 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 they were able to get the game running at a blazing four frames per second. That's right, not forty, not even 14, four frames per second. That was enough to create the illusion and to find the fun. So you had Sid, the hotshot technologist, coming up with the great new engine. You had Andy Hollis, the perfectly competent programmer, optimizing the hell out of the simulation to get it running well in Sid's new engine. And you had Arnold bringing in the design aesthetic and creating this almost RPG-like layer on top of the simulation to make it more immersive. Between the two of them, it was an expensive game, it cost way more than normal, and it took 18 months because of all the delays, but when it came out in 1986, Gunship was another massive hit, and it was because of this marriage of technology and design.
0: I'm going to show the C64 version in the show notes here, and then I will also have the DOS version of this, and it is night and day difference <laughs> on that frame rate. Yeah. You play this thing on the c C64 your God, the four frames per second it makes me go on like, is this the right video? <laughs> What's going on here? This thing's slow.
1: Exactly. No, t- to modern eyes, it's terrible. I mean, that would be unplayable today because we have an expectation of how a game is going to feel as you play it. Back then, you didn't have the same expectation for flight simulators. So within the context of the time... Four frames per second wasn't blazing fast by any stretch, but it was fast enough. They were able to get enough of the versatility in there that it worked.
0: So keep that in mind when you're looking at some of these videos that I'll put in there. And I will try to do older hardware, but really, you look at it and you're like, how can this be a major seller if it has all of these flaws, these low (laughs) frame rates, this horrible sound? These terrible polygon graphics with barely any coloring to them. <laughs> yeah. It's a different
1: time back then, believe me. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's certainly more impressive than what you could do on your Atari, by which I mean the VCS, obviously, not the ST computer. So yeah, it's all dependent on time. So that, that's gunship, and that's really the first time that this combination of design and simulation really comes together in a meaningful way. Another thing I want to point out really fast is just on silent service, which we don't need to go into detail on. It's a submarine game. Sid got the idea to do it because the company Spectrum Holobite had done a submarine simulator called Gato a year or so prior, and Sid thought he could do better. Again, he saw what they were doing, and he saw they were trying to capture the realism, but he thought that he could find the fun and that he could do it better. So he did a submarine game. He also tried to capture the feel. Because even though having these other designers around him helped, Sid had some of this innate idea of good design around him as well. So he was trying to capture the feel of being a submarine commander by referencing the book Clear the Bridge by Richard O'Kane, which was a classic memoir by one of the most decorated submarine commanders of World War II, telling about his tours of duty as the commander of the USS Tang and all of the escapades that they got up to during the war. He really wanted to get this feeling of being a sub-commander and having to play cat-and-mouse games with other subs and surface ships, and he created this big map that you could zoom in on, so you're navigating around the islands, you're carefully picking at your targets— you know, it's got that versimilitude with some fun to it. But one interesting thing that kind of doubles down and kind of reinforces this idea that we're talking about on how Microprose doesn't want to just have an accurate simulation, but also wants to find fun as well, is Wild Bill Steely, who is not a designer, but is always play testing the games, always playing the games, says, this is really slow. I understand this is realistic submarine warfare, and I'm not telling you to take out the realistic submarine warfare, because that's important. Because I'm a fighter pilot. I don't do this cat-and-mouse stuff. Sometimes I just want to go in guns blazing. So you need to put a deck gun on this submarine, which submarines would have back then. They would have a deck-mounted gun, so if they happen to be forced to the surface, they would have a small fighting chance. It would only be a small fighting chance. They're not meant to be surface fighting ships. But they would have deck guns, just sometimes, just in case. Sid was like, no, no, that's not what this game is about. This is about cat-and-mouse tactics and staying underwater. If you've come to the surface, everything's gone wrong. That's not what we're trying to simulate. Wild Bill's like, I don't care, I want a deck gun. Deck gun, deck gun, deck gun. When Wild Bill wants something, he is relentless, which is what made him a good salesman for Microprose's products. You know, he pestered Sid enough that he said, fine, I'll put in a deck gun. And so he did. This story may be apocryphal. It's a story that Wild Bill definitely told at the time. I mean, he told Sid that this happened at the time. Whether he exaggerated with Sid because he's an exaggerator or not, I don't know, because Sid wasn't in the room. But this is a real story from the time, not just something that he made up like 20 years later. He was still their primary salesperson at the time, so he's demoing the game, Wild Bill is, for some sales reps. In demos, it's very important that the demo goes well. Not just in terms of everything going well technically, no crashes, no weird bugs, that kind of thing, but also that the game playing session goes well. Because in this kind of gut instinct world of sales, vibes are very important. If you end up failing a game over and over, even if the game is playing technically well, even if it's running smoothly, even if the graphics are impressive, if you're losing over and over and you get frustrated or you get discouraged, Those vibes permeate the room and it can dampen enthusiasm. It's that whole thing about how first impressions are so important. You need demos to not just go well in terms of the game functioning well, but also in terms of the game session itself going well. So Wild Bill's demoing this game. And like I said, Wild Bill does not care for the idea of pussyfooting around and doing hide and seek with ships. He wants to go in guns blazing. So that's what he does. So he charges in And takes on multiple ships at once, which you're not really supposed to do. You're supposed to, like, wait for openings and separate ships from the pack and take them out one by one. But Wild Bill's just charged right in the middle. You know, he's got ships dropping depth charges at him from all directions. He's firing torpedoes like mad. He manages to take out two of the three ships, but he's all out of torpedoes. He gets forced to the surface. It's almost over. And then he uses the deck gun. When he's almost dead, he fires that deck gun, takes out the last ship, and as Wild Bill tells it, a cheer erupts amongst the sales reps watching. And, you know, it's a feel-good moment for the demo. So, of course, Wild Bill comes back and says, See, Sid, I told you, deck gun. That's where it's at. As Sid tells it, ever after that, Wild Bill considered himself just as much a designer as anyone else, and whenever he thought a game didn't have enough excitement, he would just say, deck gun! And that would be his shorthand for saying, you've got to find that extra little element that provides that extra bit of oomph to get this game over the top. If only
0: we could actually see that demo in some sort of archival video. That would be awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no video. It's, it wasn't like a public trade show demo or anything like that. And like I said, Wild Bill's the only one there. He was probably embellishing some. I mean, I believe that he probably took out the last ship with the deck gun. Was it really life or death in that moment? Was there really a cheer when it was over? Wild Bill does like to embellish, so maybe not. But I'm sure the story happened in its broad outlines. It just goes to show, though, how everyone is thinking about design. I just want to talk about one more story in regards to this before we move on to the next phase of Microprose. That is a game called Airborne Ranger, which was not a Sid Meier game. It was actually a game created by Lawrence Schick. Lawrence Schick is another interesting individual because he's another one of these tabletop guys. He worked for TSR. He worked in pen and paper role-playing games. Then he was one of these guys that answered the call to go to Coleco, but he could actually program. So he was actually both a programmer and a designer at Coleco. He worked on their Zaxxon port, for instance. Then he knew Arnold Hendrick, of course, from Coleco. Arnold told him that there were opportunities at Microprose, and so he came and joined Microprose as another game designer, but one who also had a little bit of programming ability as well. So he was tasked with creating this Airborne Ranger game. It was more of an action game. Much less of a simulation than their typical thing. It almost played like the arcade game Commando. It was very similar to that. A lot more action-oriented. As someone who came from the pen and paper world, he decided that the way to make this a more interesting game than just a straight action game was to create individual missions through procedural generation. The individual missions were not the same from playthrough to playthrough. A new mission was generated at the beginning of each game. Now, these aren't complex missions because it is primarily an action game, but the terrain's different. The enemies are different. You had to do a little bit of planning in order to be successful in the mission. You couldn't just memorize patterns. Someone who was just a video game programmer might not have thought to do that. Not that there haven't been games with randomly generated content, there certainly have. But generally speaking, when creating an action game at that time of that type, you didn't really do that kind of thing. But coming from the pen and paper world, Schick decided that he is a creator of systems. That's what you do in the pen and paper world. Those systems dictate the content, and then the content dictates emerging narrative. So he kind of put that into practice with Airborne Ranger. And that became another big hit for Microprose, and certainly the fact that the game had good replay value because uh, missions didn't play out the same way twice, certainly I think had something to do with how successful that game was. Once again, design sensibility influencing a game's success at Microprose, and of course he created a detailed manual with all sorts of information about Airborne Rangers, some of which was just in there for human interest that had nothing to do with actually playing the game.
0: The game itself is actually kind of interesting. You parachute in, you have this sort of very simple overhead view map. I can certainly see how the elements there are very procedurally generated. You have randomly Mm -hmm. forming rivers, you have random walls, you have random this, that, and the other thing. But it all looks like, hey, here's some tile elements and we just need to do some simple AI to make sure that there's a path from point A to point B. How we get there, I don't care. Once you're actually in the combat mode, you actually have some fairly good frame rate and you're moving around and you do sort of this one-on-one combat almost where like, oh, yeah, I see this guy here. He died for cover. I try to see if I'm going to shoot him with my gun, throw a grenade, whatever I'm going to do. It's not like you were saying commando where there's like hordes of enemies coming at you. It's more like commando in a way of perspective where you have this top-down view slightly skewed, and then you're moving
1: around the map from there. Absolutely. You know, in these three games, in Silent Service and Gunship and in Airborne Ranger, it's not the only games they created in this period of time, but those three games kind of illustrate the ways in which finding the fun... And design sensibility and having professional designers on staff, not just game programmers, is influencing the micro pros output and is making it more and more successful because these are all big hits. I mean, these are super successful games and the game is growing. It's going from like a $5 million a year company to a $15 million a year company to a $20 million a year. I mean, it's growing in revenues throughout this entire period because of this sensibility. This really all comes together in the famous game Sid Meier's Pirates. We talked about pirates in our Sid Meier episode, so I don't want to completely go over it again. We've already discussed how it plays. But I do want to discuss the road that they kind of got there with this game, because that's not something we discussed in the other episode. And it brings in these other designers and shows how important they were to Sid developing even more as a designer himself. Because the genesis for Pirates, it was actually an Arnold Hendricks idea. Arnold actually had a background in history, like his education was in history and military history. So not only does he have all of this experience in game design, but he also has a lot of knowledge about history and about military history. He had the idea that perhaps as their next game in terms of simulating combat, to, again, be different, not just do another jet fighter game or another submarine game. And they did sequels. We're not going to really talk about the sequels in this episode, but, I mean, there was an F-15 Strike Eagle 2. There was an F-15 Strike Eagle 3. There was a Silent Service 2. It's not like they never repeated themselves. But in addition to doing those kind of sequels, they were always looking to new horizons and new ways that they could entertain the public as well. And Sid was especially about that, because, as we said in the first episode— He was not about ports, sequels, rehashes. He was always trying to push forward and find the next fun thing. By this time, he was, quite frankly, out of ideas on flight simulators. He was not necessarily completely burned out on them, but he didn't see how he could really improve on what he had already done in Strike Eagle, Silent Service, Gunship, etc. I mean, yes, could you improve the frame rate? Could you improve the graphics? Of course, there's always incremental improvements you can make, but Sid isn't about, I can make this little tweak here. He's about, this is the big new thing I've discovered how to do. He couldn't think of the next big thing in military simulation games. So he didn't want to do that again. So at some point, Arnold Hendricks suggested, what about a naval combat game in the Age of Sail? Ships fighting each other, shooting broadsides and crossing the T. And there were some popular board games that had been done around that. So, you know, again, they've got this stable of designers that know about these things. There had been a game called Wooden Ships and Iron Men, for instance, that was somewhat popular in this vein. So Arnold Hendricks said, you know, maybe do that and, and maybe, uh, you know, you can be pirates on the high seas and doing battle with ships of the line and all of that stuff. Sid Meier thought about that, and he was like, I kind of like the idea of doing pirates, and I kind of like the idea of doing that period of history that we haven't really done. But I don't really think that a naval combat game, an Age of Sail naval combat game, is really going to hold the public's interest. However, I know what's fun about pirates to me, finding the fun again. The thing I find fun about pirates is they go on adventures. Of course, real pirates didn't go on adventures. Real pirates trolled around on old, dilapidated ships, never having enough food to eat, never having enough vitamin C, getting scurvy, being smelly, losing limbs, barely eking out a living, doing horrible, horrible things to merchant ships. But when Sid says pirates go on adventures, what he means is, as a child, he watched the swashbuckling movies like the Captain Blood movies starring Errol Flynn. Those pirates, the Errol Flynns and the Burt Lancasters of the world, they went on adventures. So if I am going to make a game about pirates, I'm not going to make a naval combat game. I'm going to make an adventure game. But when he said that, he did not mean adventure games in the computer game context, because there was already such a thing as an adventure game in computer games. That was Zork, or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or King's Quest or Maniac Mansion. Those were adventure games where you went around picking up inventory items and using them to solve puzzles. He did not like games like that, what he called pick-up-the-stick games. So he was kind of miffed that the term adventure already was co-opted for something else, but he still had the idea that he was going to make a game about having adventures like Errol Flynn or Burt Lancaster did on the silver screen. What did those pirates do? Those pirates hunted for buried treasure, they wooed maidens, they stole governor's daughters, they had sword fights, they did do ship combat as well, it's not like we're getting rid of the looting and pillaging, but they did all of these things. So he wanted a game that encompassed all of that. According to Lawrence Schick, who did not primarily work on pirates, but it was at the company at the time, he feels that he was a real influence on Sid in figuring out how you can create an interlocking group of game systems to create a narrative for the player. Because that's really what Pirates does. Pirates is a classic pen and paper game designers kind of game. It's basically an RPG in the classic pen and paper sense, not again in the computer game sense where you have a character and your character goes on adventures and there are a bunch of different rule systems that cover different eventualities, ship combat, sword fighting, treasure hunting, whatever. By engaging in those various activities and participating in those game systems, you create your own narrative of how you had this one memorable sword fight with this pirate or this colonial officer that you then narrate in your own head, or you looted this ship, and it was particularly memorable, and narrative emerges out of gameplay systems.
0: Arr, I be Big Pirate Jeffrey, and I'm going to go forth and take over the world. First, we're going to go get the maidens, and get all the gold, and then get the booty, and then we're going to use it to form a game arcade company in the future. <laughs>
1: There you go. A big Jeffrey for every occasion. (laughs) You know, this was not necessarily something that Sid, on his own, was completely comfortable with. Now, the idea for Pirates was his. I'm not trying to take the idea away from Sid. Sid had the idea. Sid wanted all of the adventures. Sid was the driver of the entire game. But I do think being surrounded by the other designers at Microprose helped elevate his game design instincts, which were already very good to a whole new level. And that's how you got something like Pirates. And then the other thing that was an influence is that once Sid had a lot of the basic stuff worked out on the game, Arnold Hendricks came in and also served as a designer on it. What Arnold said was, okay, if we're doing this, let's really be period accurate. Again, it's not about making sure the Pirates are only doing accurate Pirate things. This is that whole idea of find the fun again. We're going to have the pirates do the ridiculous things that they do in the movies, rather than the far more mundane things like getting scurvy that they did in real life. Let's at least make sure the world is accurate. We have the correct colonial powers. We have the correct ship capabilities. We reference pirates that were actually active in the period that we've chosen to represent this game and not have ahistorical pirates that may be real people like Blackbeard, who is a very popular in pop culture pirate that everyone knows, but wasn't actually active in the period the game is set. So after Sid had all of these systems worked out, Arnold came in and gave it this great historical polish and made the world feel realistic and immersive on top of the systems. The other thing Arnold did that was very important is Sid realized as they got near the conclusion of creating this game, that he hadn't created a victory condition for the player. There was no final big bad. There was no final big objective. There was not this thing that said, congratulations, you have won. And he was like, oh, no, no, this this is bad. We have to have something. You win games. That's how games work. You play them and you win them. But Arnold said to him, according to Arnold himself, he said, no, I think in this case, I think with what we have here... The reward of the game is just that you become a more powerful and more infamous pirate. There doesn't need to be a final objective that ends the game. It's just you continue to pirate until you die, game over, or you retire. Then the amount of wealth, power, success, points, whatever that you've acquired when you choose to retire, that is your legacy. You don't need a final end objective because this game is not creating a story, a linear narrative story about, I am this pirate trying to overcome this objective. It's creating an emergent story by saying, you are a pirate. You are a pirate in this world. You are making your own story. And when you're finally done and you've decided your character is done that all he can and will do, just end the game at that time and you have crafted your own narrative of what your pirate accomplished. Again, that is classic role-playing game or pen-and-paper game kind of design sensibility. Being layered on top of Sid's technical ability and Sid's already innate game design ability to find fun. It's all working together, and it all creates this brand new type of game, because no one had ever really seen anything like pirates before. An open-ended action-adventure game where you could go out and do a bunch of different individual activities, have fun doing those individual activities, and build a larger emergent narrative out of your character by doing all of these things. I think only a company in this period like Microprose could have done something like that because they married video game designers with pen and paper and board game designers. Now we have to back up again, just like we did in the last episode. We've been telling the Sid side of the story, but Microprose is always a story of two people. It's the story of Sid, and it's the story of Wild Bill. Other than having fun with deck guns, what is Wild Bill doing in this late 80s period as the company is expanding? The answer is he is aggressively expanding the company. He is a go-getter. He's driven. We've talked about how driven he has been to be as successful as possible. Some of that's stemming from his childhood and the hard life he had in childhood. As the company is bringing in more revenue, he is charging full speed ahead. In 1985, he sets up the company's first real sales organization. He hires a retired Greek executive by the name of Mr. Barbaros. I unfortunately don't have a first name, but his name is Barbaros who had run a 400-person sales organization for a big company, but now he was in his late 60s. He was retired. He was just looking for something fun to do. Steely found him somehow, hired him, and Barbaros built them a real sales rep organization so that they had good sales penetration now across the entire country without having to rely on outside buyers and distributors. He also brought in some of the first marketing people. A guy named Fred Schmidt was brought in to run the marketing department they started doing more aggressive marketing campaigns. He also just lived the Wild Bill persona. He would go to trade shows dressed in his flight suit and do the whole fighter pilot thing. He's no longer the primary salesman now that he's hired a sales VP, but he's still representing the company at places like trade shows and doing this larger-than-life fighter pilot thing They even buy a plane with some of their profits for the company. It's a company plane. And they even did a sweepstakes once where uh, people could win a flight with Wild Bill in the company plane. So he's doing that kind of stuff. He's looking at ways to continue to expand the company. I mean, they are hiring more programmers. They're hiring their first artists. They're hiring designers. But they're also looking for other ways to expand the company as well. One thing he starts to do is providing a more international presence for the company. He's one of the very early American computer game companies to start trying to set up international distribution. He goes to the United Kingdom in 1986 to see what's what there and discovers the company U.S. Gold, run by Jeff Brown. U.S. Gold is... One of the largest British publishers, and as their name suggests, they were specifically founded, we've talked about them before, though we haven't done a full episode on them yet. They were specifically founded to take games from the United States, license them, port them to the computers like the ZX Spectrum that were popular in Britain, but not necessarily popular in the US, and bring some of those US titles to the UK market. Wild Bill Steely gets in with Jeff Brown and gets MicroPro's product into Britain and continental Europe in 1986, which is very early for an American company. He also makes contacts in Japan. He's starting to get more international. And then, as he puts it, he goes to the United Kingdom to check on how things are going there, because he's never somebody to just say, "Okay, I've given this to you. Now go do it. And, you know, I'll never bother you again. He's not a micromanager, I don't think. But he's also not someone who's ever going to let you be off on your own without checking in from time to time. So he goes over to the UK and he discovers two things, according to him. First of all, he tried to get a meeting with Boots, which is one of the big retailers there. He couldn't get them to take a meeting because nobody there knew what Microprose was. Because, of course, even though Microprose Games were there, and Microprose Games were selling very well for U.S. Gold, they did not say Microprose on the box. They said U.S. Gold on the box. So nobody in the retail and distribution business in the U.K. knew who Microprose was, even though their games were doing well. The other thing, as he put it, is he noticed that the U.S. gold people were driving fancier cars than he was. In other words, they're making way more money on my games over here, so there's a lot of money to be had here, and so why am I paying them a portion of the profits? So he decides to cut out the middleman about 1988 and set up his own Microprose U.K. operation hires a local managing director, local uh, finance person, local salesperson, and sets up a Microprose UK office sometime around 1988 to both sell games coming over from the United States to Europe, but also to connect with local talent as well. They end up buying British Telecom Soft's game labels, Firebird and Rainbird, and incorporating that into Microprose. They make deals with local programmers like the uh, celebrated driving game programmer Jeff Crammon and start releasing his games, for instance. Of course, outside the scope of this episode, because we're not going this far, but they end up releasing, you know, the true classic XCOM from Julian Gollop, which again only came to MicroProse because they had a UK division that was very well known and, and Julian Gollop was in the UK. So. He's building them out in the UK. He's building them out in Japan. He's doing this international thing. One thing that he doesn't do, however, is get onto the Nintendo Entertainment System. The thing is, he could have, because he was very early in Japan. So he knew what was going on in Japan with the family computer. He knew this thing was selling well. He, I think, probably figured it was going to do pretty well in the United States, too. But it was the control, and we've talked about this in the context of some of the other computer game programmers, the controls Nintendo had, where you had to pay them to manufacture your product for you, where they would give you an allocation and would limit how many cartridges they would make for you, when they would limit how many games you could release a year, when they would demand exclusivity on their games, the controls in place by Nintendo for Wild Bill and for many of the other early computer entrepreneurs were just too much. They did not want to put up with that. He declined to get in on the NES early and probably regretted a little bit afterwards, because even though he could probably see it was going to be somewhat of a success, I don't think anyone realized in the U.S. it was going to be that monster of a success that it was going to be worth giving up some of that control for. However, he did have a sense that the more action-y Twitch games were going to be a bigger deal, even though he didn't want to get in on the NES market, he thought that they needed to get MicroProse's product into that more action-intensive realm. He did what he thought was the next best thing, and he established a coin-op division at Microprose. Wait, wait, wait. Microprose
0: actually goes into coin-op.
1: Microprose goes into coin-op. He's serious about it. He hires Gene Lipkin the former president of Atari and Sega's coin-op divisions at various times, and builds a whole team to start building out coin-op games because he felt they needed to expand into another realm. I think he saw some of the squeeze that was probably going to happen to the computer game market as the console games and whatnot got bigger, and he thought that the arcade market was going to kind of grow on the back of that as well. And so he thought this was going to be a growth industry that he could get micropros in and diversify them and cushion any blow that would come from computer game sales being impacted by this new wave of action games. So they built a version of F-15 Strike Eagle for arcades. They also built a robot fighting game called Bots. I'm not sure if Bots was ever released, but they built it. Strike Eagle was released. and It sold 7,000 units, which was pretty good for that time of the coin-op industry. But they could never make the finances work because they were not adept at that kind of development. So it ended up being kind of a disaster that they did that. He did take them into Coinop. He took them overseas, and he also took them into publishing other people and companies' games. He created a new label called Microplay that was a little bit like the affiliated label programs that some of the other companies like Activision, EA, and Broderbund were doing though I think some of it was pure publishing. I don't think it was entirely affiliated label where people published other than their own names and Microprose just did the distribution. They created the Microplay label so that they could publish more games than just what their internal developers could put out, which actually led to some tensions at the company. The programmers and designers at Microprose felt kind of put out by this whole Microplay thing because a lot of the Microplay stuff was Not as good, quite frankly. Some of it was okay. I mean, they published Command HQ, for instance, from Danielle Bunton, which was considered a pretty darn good strategy game. There were a couple of good things. But for the most part, a lot of it was not as good a quality stuff. And so the designers kind of felt kind of put out by that. And there was actually a real divide. They started calling themselves internally MPS Labs. They created their own internal design team name to kind of be like, We're the advanced lab, like a research lab. We're the advanced, really cool people, MPS Labs, unlike this Microplay stuff. There came to be a real division where the designers and programmers tried to keep the marketing people out of the development area as much as possible. Like, this created a lot of tension in the company. It was all about Wild Bill's insatiable desire to expand. It was this desire to expand that finally did end the partnership between Sid and Wild Bill. Because throughout this entire time, they had a 50-50 partnership in the company. Wild Bill was chairman, CEO, whatever. Sid Meyer officially had a vice president title. As they were 50-50 partners, he could have technically overruled any decision that Wild Bill made. Because since they each had an exact split, both of them had to agree on things. If one of them disagreed, there wasn't a majority rules and he could technically stop the company from doing something. But he was not interested in being involved in the running of the company, as we talked about last episode. However, he felt really uncomfortable being a partner in the company once Wild Bill started doing some of these expansions. He particularly thought Coinop was a mistake. He thought that was a bad idea, and he was proven right. They lost money on that. So in 1989, he asked to be bought out of the partnership. He gave up his shares back to Wild Bill and was no longer even an employee of the company because he didn't want to be an employee either because he'd helped found the company. He didn't want to be a mere employee. So they set up an independent contractor relationship in 1989. Sid was an independent contractor. He was not a Microprose employee, and he no longer had any ownership of the company. But he had an exclusive contract with Microprose. So he was only going to develop product for Microprose. A lot of people don't even realize, I mean, a lot of studies of the company never really even mention this buyout thing. They just assume that he was a partner or an employee of the company the entire time he was there. But actually, from 1989, he was no longer with Microprose. He was an independent contractor with an exclusive contract with Microprose. So he's bought out. The company hits a little hiccup around 1989. The coin-op thing's a mess. Gene Lipkin ends up leaving with a bunch of the team to do his own thing. A lot of people in the U.K. division start thinking that they can do better on their own. So his managing director, sales guy, and product development guy in the U.K. all leave. He also has his wife, Wild Bill does, in 1989 saying she wants a divorce. Now, his wife, they've been married for a long time at this point, nearly 20 years. Not quite 20 years yet, but getting close to it. She had been integral to the company from day one. We didn't really talk about her in the last episode, but she was right there helping out around the office, helping pack and ship stuff. She was putting her blood, sweat, and tears into the company as well. Their relationship was under strain. strain. So in the same year, he had his coin-op president, his managing director in Europe, and his wife all fixing to leave him. As he said to me and other people in interviews, he's not sure how he didn't have a heart attack that year. He was under so much stress. And his partner leaving, because Sid wants out too. Everybody's leaving him. You know, they end the coin-ops thing. They take a financial hit for it, but the company doesn't strictly die. He does find new people to keep the UK operation going, so that continues to be a stream of revenue. He does convince his wife to stay with him for the moment. They do get divorced about five years later. He says they're still friends to this day, and in fact, he he says he gave her a very generous divorce settlement because he felt that she really was instrumental in the company getting off the ground with all the work she did. As he tells it, he gave her a very, very generous settlement and the divorce as well to recognize that. He gets through it. The company's hurting a little bit, but they're able to make all of that go away by going public in 1991 because they are still growing. Their revenues are hitting 40 million, 50 million a year. Even though they're having some of this wobble, the numbers still look good overall, and so he takes the company public, and by taking the company public, he's able to eliminate some of the debts that have accrued from the coin-op stuff and everything else. This is Microprose kind of at the top of its game in 1991. You know, they've had the string of simulation hits, they had Pirates, which was a big hit, Then after that, of course, Bruce Shelley joins the company, who had an extensive history in war games and pen and paper games, and becomes Sid Meier's kind of muse, becomes his sounding board, becomes his producer, uses his innate ability with figuring out gameplay to help Sid shape his ideas on games like Railroad Tycoon and Civilization, which we're not going to go into detail on in this episode because we covered them in our Sid Meier episode. Everything's humming on all cylinders. They've got the military games. They've got the action-adventure games like Pirates. They've got the new forex strategy games like Civilization. They've just gone public. Revenues are hitting $50 million. What could possibly go wrong?
0: The altimeter fails?
1: <laughs> Something like that. So, you know, while Bill is charging hard, there's a lot of benefit to his hard-charging, take-charge type A, keep-moving-forward-no-matter-what personality. But there are some disadvantages to it as well, because now that the company is getting bigger and more mature, there needs to be more careful management of the assets that are there and more measured diversification into new areas. There needs to be leadership that is far more even-keeled, maybe even slightly conservative. Not super conservative, because you always have to be innovating in the video game space but not necessarily chasing after every new shiny thing that comes along with the exact same amount of fervor that Wild Bill is. Basically, you need to leave the startup entrepreneur mentality and enter into a more stable business management mentality. That is not Wild Bill's strength. Wild Bill's strength is hard-charging, salesmanship, showmanship. He's good at finances, too. I mean, he has an MBA from Wharton. He's a good finance guy, too. He understands numbers. It's not like he's just going crazy and doesn't know what things cost, but his impulse is to move forward all the time. And at this point, you need somebody that is willing to maybe sometimes pull back slightly. They don't do that. They keep expanding into new areas. He had been a little uncomfortable about the move into pirates, moving out of military simulations. We talked a little bit about putting Sid's name on the box in the last episode, but we have Sid's side of that now, too, which we didn't have in that episode. And while Bill tells the story about how they were at the Software Publishers Association and Robin Williams was there and talking about stars and all of this, he says that that's why he decided to put Sid's name on the box. And I'm sure some of that was an influence, but what it came down to is he didn't think pirates would sell. He was like, Sid, you do military games. You don't do this other stuff. And I don't even know what this is, action, adventure, pirate, whatever. I'm uncomfortable with this, but you're my 50-50 partner. I trust you to make development decisions, so we'll let you do it, but we're going to put your name on the box because maybe we'll at least sell some copies if they realize that it's made by the same person that made all of these successful flight simulators. That's the real reason why he decided at that point to put Sid Meier's name on the box, and then when Sid Meier's decided to do Railroad Tycoon next, it was the same kind of thing. It's like, now you're talking about doing this railroad simulator, this toy train set? We're going to have to put your name on the box again. Pirates sold well, so clearly people are following Sid Meier. So now we got to put your name on the box of this, too. So it's going to be Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon. Then after that, it just became tradition. So then after that, it would always be Sid Meier's this, Sid Meier's that. He had been hesitant to do that then, but now that they have diversified some and things are going well in other areas, and as the company continues to grow, some of these other designers at the company and programmers at the company want to do things they're interested in as well. Wild Bill's in full expansion mode at this point, so he's like, okay, go do that. There was a guy named Matt Gruson that really wanted to do adventure games, and not the Sid Meier type of, I call this an adventure game, but it's not really an adventure game, but actual graphical adventure games in the vein of what was going on at places like Sierra and Lucasfilm Games. So they're like, okay, go, fine, you can do that, go make an adventure game. Bruce and his team spent a lot of money creating a really good adventure game system. They wanted to do something that was technically impressive. So they were using digitized graphics, basically, you know, rotoscoping animation kind of stuff to get really realistic animated movements that, in some ways, were better than some of what you were seeing from some of their competitors at the time, like Sierra. They created this really good adventure game system in that sense graphical and animation system. But it took a lot of money to build that. They weren't necessarily as good with the adventure game design thing because they didn't have people with that expertise. They had the Sid Meyers and Andy Hollises of the world that had done flight simulators. They had the Shicks and Hendrixes of the world that had done RPGs, but they didn't necessarily have anyone that did adventure games. They created this game with a system called Rex Nebular and the Cosmic Genderbender, which was, I think, meant to evoke some of the raunchier, more risque kind of stuff that was found in games like Leisure Suit Larry and the Infocom text adventure Leather Goddesses of Phobos with this whole Cosmic Genderbender thing. And it was meant to be kind of in, in that vein of graphical adventure game. It had some decent technology behind it, but it just wasn't that great a game. The plot wasn't very good. The puzzles weren't very good. Even though the graphics and the animation were impressive, there just wasn't much of a game there. They had failed to do things the Microprose way, which is find the fun. The Adventure Game engine is a flop. They do release a couple of other games using the engine, but it's a flop. Meanwhile, Hendrix, who came out of this RPG world, he wants to do an RPG. So he gets a group together to start working on a new role-playing game engine and a new role-playing game. But the twist he wants to take with it is he wants to keep it medieval, because those were the most popular RPGs. You know, you didn't really have as much of the science fiction or post-apocalyptic kind of RPG going on in the computer space at this time. It was mostly Ultima and Wizardry Clones. So he wanted to keep the medieval aesthetic, but he didn't want it to be just another fantasy game with orcs and elves and goblins and dragons, because everybody was doing that. You know, there was Ultima, there was Wizardry, there was Bard's Tale, there was Might and Magic, there was the Gold Box series of Dungeons and Dragons games from SSI. It's like that kind of thing was saturated. So instead, because he did have a background in history and military history, he decided he wanted to root it in the real world. In medieval times. Now, it was still going to be fantasy. This wasn't going to be a simulation, but he wanted it rooted in the real world, and he decided to do Germany. It had to be late Middle Ages because he wanted to have the full gamut that people are used to in these kind of RPGs, like full plate mail and stuff like that. And if you're going to make it historical, he does want to make it somewhat historically accurate, then that means it has to be late Middle Ages. If you're doing late Middle Ages in France or England, it's going to be all about the Hundred Years' War. He doesn't want to get involved in that. He's not as knowledgeable about that. Germany in this time period is made up of a bunch of petty little states, city-states and bishoprics and duchies and baronies and all of this. A real patchwork. There's a lot of robber knights and robber barons. It's a little more lawless. It feels like the kind of place that he can root this kind of RPG in. But he still wants it to feel like an RPG, like a Dungeons Dragons-type game. So he wants there to be some vaguely mystical and magic stuff in it. So he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to create a very accurate Middle Ages world. But the one kind of unrealistic fantasy conceit that he's going to have in it is that all of the things that people of that time thought existed in a magical way actually really exist. What I mean by that is at the time there was this belief in alchemy. There was this idea that you could turn any substance into any other substance if you just unlocked the secrets of alchemy. So he decided that alchemy would really work in his world. You could actually create potions and other things using alchemy. There was also great paranoia about witchcraft in this time period and the belief that witches existed and cast hexes and spells and whatnot. So he decided that there would be actual witches in his game, that they would actually exist as people believe they did. Of course, there was also God and demons and heaven and hell and divine intervention. So he decided that that kind of thing was going to be real, and he created a plot that was actually a conspiracy theory around the Knights Templar, that the Knights Templar had actually been worshipping an actual demon that really existed, Baphomet within the context of the world really existed. I mean, that is a mythological demon that also exists in folklore, but he's saying that this demon actually truly existed in this world and that the Templars were actually worshipping this demon, so your ultimate job in the game was going to be to uncover this demon worship and, and foil the Knights Templar was going to be the overall objective but he wasn't going to have fantasy creatures. He wasn't going to have kobolds and orcs and all of these kind of things. You know, the the opponents were going to be humans or, you know, wild animals, that kind of thing. It was going to not be a fantasy world, but it was going to be a heightened reality based on some of the ways that people in medieval times thought the world worked that ended up being incorrect. So he works on this game, Darklands, with the programmer and artist, there's some real tension between the programmer who really wants to focus more on the combat side of it, which did use a very innovative real-time-with-pause combat system before the period of time when this was common. For all I know, it may have even been the first game with with real-time-with-pause. I'm not willing to state that. But it was certainly very early in real-time combat-with-pause. There was kind of a tension between what the programmer wanted to do with the combat and the way that Hendrix wanted to keep putting more RPG elements into it. As a result, it was a troubled development. It was a very complicated game with a lot of very complicated systems that they were having trouble getting together. In the end, they actually brought in another one of these pen and paper designers that had just joined the company recently uh, a couple of years before, Sandy Peterson, most famous for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game at Chaosium. They brought Sandy Peterson in to do a lot of the quests for the game, and he tried to steer the game a little more in the direction of a traditional role-playing game because it felt to him like they were losing some of the fun, (laughs) if you will, some of the fun of an RPG as they tried to create this realistic world. And the example he gives is he went to Arnold Hendrick and said to Hendrick, we need to have some dungeons in the game because you don't have any dungeons in the game. And if people are playing an RPG, they're going to expect dungeons tell me a little bit about what mines were like in medieval Europe, because they still have to keep it somewhat grounded in reality. So the quote-unquote dungeons have to be the kind of real-world structures you would find in a real setting. So Hendrik starts talking to him about how mines were owned by joint stock companies and uh, how the miners' labor went and all that, and it's like, no, 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 Arnold. That's great, but I need to know how these mines are laid out and how we can realistically put dungeon adventures in them. I don't need to know about the joint stock companies running them. I think that was kind of the disconnect. You had the tug of war between Hendrik and the programmer, combat versus RPG. You had the tug of war between needing to make something that was realistic to the times versus something that had conventions that were more like a traditional role-playing game. And you were trying to create a whole new engine at the same time that is new and buggy. It was having a lot of trouble coming together, and they were finally starting to whip it into shape in 1992. But it still needed a lot of testing and balancing, and it was still full of bugs. Microprose did have a QA department. The head of the QA department, you know, Wild Bill was really pushing them to release the game because they needed product in the pipeline. The head of QA refused to sign off on the game. He said, This is so buggy, we cannot release it in this state. Wild Bill overruled him. Wild Bill, who had always been about the quality, you know, going all the way back to Hellcat Ace when he gave suggestions to Sid on all the ways that his initial version of it needed to be improved before he would go out and sell it according to their bet. Wild Bill, who had always been so big on quality, was feeling such pressure from his board to deliver quarterly results that he said, I understand that, but we need a product in this quarter. We can't let this game slip. It is releasing now. So Darklands goes out in 1992. It has a cult following today. There are people who really like it, and it was eventually patched to be playable to some degree, but when it was first released, it was really buggy. It was disastrous. It crashed all the time, and it was a colossal failure. You see, while Bill had wanted the company to expand, and part of the idea about building out this adventure game engine and building out this RPG engine is that there would be a lot of upfront development costs on the first game, but then they would have those engines, and they could keep churning out additional games after that. The problem was Rex Nebular and Darklands, the initial games with those engines, were both disasters, so they were never able to recoup those costs of those engines. So they really started to have a pull on their resources. And during this time, Wild Bill is having big fights with his board because the board wants to see more discipline now that they're a public company, and they don't think Wild Bill has the discipline they're looking for to run the company. So he finally acquiesces to the board and brings in a professional manager, someone who actually has managerial experience at a company. He brings in a friend of his from another local Baltimore area company, not from the game business, called Mark Barnett to be the new president of the company. He remains the chairman, but he relinquishes that president day-to-day operation role to Barnett. But then Barnett and Steely are butting heads as well, because Barnett wants to institute more traditional management and traditional structure in the company. This kind of clashes with Wild Bill's sensibilities, so finally the board says, look, Wild Bill. You need to step back and give Mark a chance to run the company. So, why don't you take some time? You know, he's still chairman of the board. They're not telling him to leave Microprose, but why don't you take some time, back off, let Mark do what he needs to do, and then come back and take a more active role again in six months or so once Mark's had a time to do his thing? So, Wild Bill's like, okay, fine, I'll do that. You know, he's got some money because the company's gone public. He actually invests in. Uh, There's a new indoor soccer league starting up, which I don't think any longer exists, but he buys a soccer team, the Baltimore Spirit, goes off and plays around with that a bit, takes some time, and lets Mark do his thing. During that period of time, everything falls apart. We mostly only have Wild Bill's version of what happened, so, you know, he's going to have his bias. But the way he puts it, Mark Barnett, in trying to impose a more traditional structure and a traditional way of doing things at the company changed the way that the developers were compensated. They're salaried. Everyone's salaried there. But the way Wild Bill did it, according to Steely himself, is that he would provide big incentives for shipping a game on time. So you'd get a salary, and then if you met your deadlines, you'd get a, like a bonus. So as he put it, that meant that the way game development tended to work is that there would be a decent amount of development at the beginning when everyone's excited, then development would kind of lag in the middle, and then there would be a furious outpouring to get development done as fast as possible at the end in order to hit those deadlines and get their incentives. In that way, Microprose was able to always release their games on time. According to Wild Bill, this changed When Barnett moved to an overtime system instead, he got rid of bonus incentives for hitting targets and instead said, we're going to institute a regular workplace kind of thing where you're salaried, you get paid. Well, I suppose if they were getting overtime, I don't know if they were salaried or hourly. It doesn't matter. It could be either way. But we're going to institute, you know, regular kind of working hours and then you'll get overtime. Well, according to Wild Bill, that took away any incentive to finish a game because they just kept iterating and iterating and polishing and polishing and collecting overtime and collecting overtime and never finishing their product. So games started missing their deadlines. The company started not having product to ship. This started creating losses at the company, and losses at the company because they're a public company caused the stock to start tanking. The big example of this was F-15 Strike Eagle 3, which blew its deadline and missed the majority of the Christmas shopping season, which tanked the quarter for the company. Now, Strike Eagle 3 ended up being a successful game, but it ended up being a successful game in early 1993, not late 1992, when they needed it to do well to hit the quarter. That was not the only Time that they had missed their targets. So the stock started tanking in 1993 while Bill came back, fired Burnett, and took back over an active role as president of the company. But both the board and the investors had started losing faith at this point, and quite frankly, everybody just started looking for a way out. Microprose was still releasing some highly regarded games, some successful games but their revenues were starting to dip from their high of 50 million down into the mid and the low 40s. They were starting to take some losses because of missed deadlines. So basically both the board, the investors and Wild Bill started looking for a way out. They started looking at some venture capital companies that might have been interested to come in and refinance them, but in the end they settled on a deal with a rival company, Spectrum Holobyte. Spectrum Holobyte, we're not going to go in their history here, obviously. We'll do that on its own sometime. But they were involved in a lot of the same areas that Microprose was. They were in flight simulators. Their flagship series was the Falcon series of flight simulators based on the F 16, as opposed to Microprose's F 15 games. In 1991, when Spectrum Holobyte was in trouble because they were owned by Robert Maxwell's Mir Group and we covered some of this in our Tetris episode, and at some, someday we'll cover some in our Spectrum Holobyte episode as well. But Maxwell took a little plunge off of his boat. It was discovered that he had been looting the company for years, and there were no assets, and the company was falling apart, and it was a disaster. Regulators became convinced that a lot of the money was hiding at Spectrum Holobyte. It wasn't. But the investigators looking for these embezzled pension funds thought they were Spectrum Holobites, so they were under huge pressure and they had no money. Their parent company had no money and it looked like they wouldn't be able to continue their operations. And Gilman-Louis told Wild Bill about all this and Wild Bill just loaned him like half a million dollars, no questions asked, to continue operations. Now, basically, Gilman-Louis at Spectrum Holobite came back and returned the favor. Wild Bill's like, we have troubles. The board's not happy. The investors aren't happy. I'm not happy. We need to get out of this, but we don't want to close down the company. Would you be willing to acquire us? And Spectrum Holobyte had just gone through a round of venture funding after they broke free from the Maxwell situation. So they had money. There were synergies between the companies. So in 1993, Spectrum Holobyte purchased Microprose. Wild Bill left the company entirely at that point. Sid Meier continued to make games for the company for several more years. But of course, he's not an employee of the company. He's an independent contractor. So that really is kind of a turning point and a changing point for Microprose, because neither of the founders are at the company anymore, and it's no longer a company whose fortunes are being dictated by the hard-charging, go-get-em-entrepreneurship of Wild Bill Steely and the -the find-the-fun design sensibility of Sid Meier, but will instead be dictated by its new parent company, Spectrum Holobyte. Microprose would remain an independent division of Spectrum holobyte for a few more years and essentially run sort of on its own, but its days of true independence were over. What happened to Microprose and Spectrum holobyte? After that, we’ll have to wait for another day, sometime in the undetermined future, when we turn our attention to a full history of Spectrum holobyte. That really brings us to the end of Microprose, a company that I think combined. Excellent programming, great design sensibility, and hard-charging salesmanship better than maybe any other of the small computer game companies of the 1980s, but which didn't have the managerial maturity as the industry got bigger and as the company got bigger to continue leveraging those strengths into the 1990s, and at that point they became weaknesses that pulled the company down by spreading out their design in too many different directions and not having the financial and managerial discipline to keep the company profitable.
0: It really seems like even though the company was still in a very good upward trajectory, really once Sid Meier and Bill split, that's really where the gas ran out.
1: Yeah, you know, Wild Bill, I mean, he's a smart guy and and has a lot of talents. But he had really taken the company about as far as he could. This is a problem that just about all of the small companies, computer game companies, had. We, we talked about this in our Serotech episodes, especially. Serotech's a company that didn't make it because it really did get beyond the Serotech brothers. The industry was too big. Serotech decided to remain small. That worked for them in the sense that it created a company that they could manage well. They didn't outgrow their managerial capability, but it also meant that they became a company that were squeezed out by larger companies. We also talked about this with Broderboom. We talked about how Broderboom was a company that was very competent at what it did, but had ownership that was unable to expand the company and grow it past a certain size, which made it a takeover target and caused it to collapse. We've also talked about other companies that got too aggressive that realized they needed to expand and did expand aggressively but did not have the management to hold on to that expansion. And then the companies broke apart because the same type of manager that is competent at running a small entrepreneur-driven company can't run a big company. This is why Electronic Arts stands out as one of the major success stories, because it was founded by a bunch of MBAs. Even though Electronic Arts had its ups and downs as well, which we talked about in our various Electronic Arts episodes, there was a broad enough skill set in the managerial space that they were able over time to balance the competing needs of creativity, growth, discipline, and stability, all of these things that are opposing forces, but they had the kind of management that could keep those opposing forces in some semblance of balance, allowing them to grow and grow and grow without completely coming apart. Most of the companies in the computer game space in the United States did not have that unique cauldron of talent. We've looked at several companies, which this was the case, like Broderbund and Tech Microprose is another example of that, where the Wild Bill method was great for getting the company to a certain size, but then they had no real idea of what to do after that. They realized that they didn't know what they were doing in time to stop the company from flying apart. But the sacrifice was that they had to be acquired by another company. They really were at the point where they could not continue to function independently anymore. So, of course, that's what happened in 1993.
0: I would say, what do we talk about next time? But I know what we're going to talk about next time. What we just got done talking about yesterday.
1: That's right. Because, you know, we're not always the world's best planners either. Sometimes we're wild bills too, just charging full steam ahead and damn the consequences. But occasionally we have these good ideas. And one good idea is hey, you know, we're giving this whole presentation on the seventh guest in the dawn of the Sillywood era for Dragon Con, and we have not covered seventh guest on the show yet. So we should probably also do Seventh Guest on the show at about the same time we're doing it at Dragon Con. That way we're not making twice the work for ourselves. We did touch on Seventh Guest briefly because we did do a Rise of Sillywood episode. And of course, Seventh Guest was a part of that. But this time, it's going to be a game-focused episode. So we're going to take a deep dive into Seventh Guest, the circumstances surrounding its genesis, the path of its creation and the reason why it became one of these founding games of this Sillywood era, and just do a a real deep dive on that. Riffing off of what we do at DragonCon a little bit, but of course this will be a proper They Create Worlds episode, so it won't be 50 minutes including time for questions. It'll be our usual however long we decide to ramble and go off on tangents. So we're going to do the seventh guest in honor of DragonCon next time around. I got a long drive ahead of me, so we'll see you
0: next time. On They Create World. R this be Big Pirate Jeffrey to let you know to check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworld.com. We have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create World, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry. Volume 1 can now be ordered at CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Feel free to consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com theycreateworlds. We need that booty. You can help us by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is "Back to Your Love" by roller Music. Found at free-music-archive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution license. Ah, we believe in DragonCon now.